Last week, we started this uh, series called Before and After. And we looked last week at, I think, one of the most vivid, uh, it's always shocking pictures of the before and after of our salvation. It was in Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, where Paul talks about us being dead, uh, children of wrath, helpless, hopeless, and then in Christ we're made alive, seated in the heavens, and become the objects of God's immeasurable grace and kindness. Uh, This morning, the picture is not going to be quite as, I think, shocking and vivid, but I think it's just as important for us to see the before and after that Paul puts for us in Philippians 3, 1 through 14. Uh, On the notes, and I think on the PowerPoint, I realized this morning it says 4, 1 through 14. That's not right. It's 3, 1 through 14. Uh, Last week, I started by telling you about uh, something that I don't enjoy doing that my wife loves to do. It was house projects. We started a new house project last week, and I said, I dread doing house projects, but my wife loves the idea of like starting house projects, doing them, seeing the change. So I decided to flip the tables, and this morning I want to tell you about something I enjoy doing that uh, my wife doesn't enjoy quite as much, and that is watching a good movie. I, there's something that I love about sitting down and just watching a good movie. And when you hear me say, good movie, Uh, don't place in there uh, the latest Marvel superhero movie, uh, Fast and Furious 20 or whatever else the the most recent blockbuster was. I like the classics. I I like the, the movies that are really good, the movies that hold their value for longer. Stuff like Dumb and Dumber, uh, Happy Gilmore, Anchorman, all, all the good ones, right? I really like any good movie at all. And and I think one of the reasons that I like watching a good movie is because I realize how terrible I would be if I had to do the actor's jobs. That's how horrible I would be if I had to actually act in, be in their position and act. And the reason I know that is because I had a fairly short-lived acting career in my life. Uh, It started in middle school when I was part of the drama club And uh, one thing I remember I had to do was I had to rap a part of a song from the cross movement. Thank goodness I think all video footage of that has been destroyed by this point, because it was probably horrible. And then my my career ended my sophomore year of high school when I tried out for like a Shakespeare play that our school was doing that fall. And the thing was, I was so anxious leading up to tryouts because I had no idea what to expect. I didn't know what I was going to have to do. And I just remember the tryout, at least from my vantage point, and I'm guessing more so from the people watching, was awful. It was awful. Uh, The one thing I do remember that I wish I didn't, but we had to say our name in a creative way. So on the spot, we had to come up with, what's a creative way you can say your name? And all I could think of was, I'm going to fluctuate my voice between really high and really low as I say my name. And I look back and I'm like, probably it just sounded like a teenage boy at the height of puberty saying his name. It wasn't creative at all. But the thing was, I look at that and I look back and I'm like, even though it was so awful, even though I dreaded it, I still really wanted to make callbacks and to get chosen for the play. I didn't. They didn't call me back for another tryout, but I still really wanted to because I look at that and I think because if that happened in that moment for just a second, I could look at something and say, 
I'm good enough. I measured up. I succeeded. I have value. Just in that second, if I could say, my performance was good enough, and they called me back to do this again. It's interesting. I was reading an article um, actually just this morning, and it's an article about how Gen Z is searching for treasure in the world. If you don't know what that term Gen Z means, it's the generation after millennials, like uh, 1995 to kind of early or mid-2000s. It said this. It said, the thirst for validation and connection is not just a generational issue. It's not just an issue with Gen Z. The search within the human soul has been around for millennia. The question that all of us are asking is, what will bring me ultimate value and fulfillment in life? But for Gen Z, they seek the answer in a unique place. A Barna study found that while all generations say family is most important to their sense of self, Gen Z's identity is most defined by personal achievement. In other words, they find the most value and fulfillment in what they could do and who they could be. I think this is a universal issue of our hearts, that we have this desire, this longing to know, am I good enough? Do I measure up? Where can I point to to say, I have value and worth and I am good enough? By the way, I think that's kind of a paraphrase for what Paul talks about when he says, our desire to know that we are righteous or to find righteousness. To know that somehow I can deep down within me know, I'm good enough, I measure up, I have value. And Paul is going to address that issue in Philippians 3, 1 through 14 with his example saying, here's what I used to bank on beforehand to know that I was good enough, and now here's what I'm banking on now. And and, and my big idea out of that as we look at that is to see that what we bank on for our value will ultimately affect our happiness, our joy in life, as well as the objective of our life, what we are living for, what our goal is. So let me pray for us, and then I want to read uh, Philippians 3, 1 through 14. God, we, I need your help this morning. We look to you to hear from you. Our hope is in you. Hope is in Christ. Our hope is in what he's done for us. God, we believe that your word is living and active, and you speak to us through it. God, we all come this morning with different things on our mind, different uh, things that have happened this week, different things that we're looking forward to. And I pray that in the midst of this next 30, 35 minutes, you would grab our attention, you'd grab our hearts, you'd speak to us, and you'd remind us of how good it is to look to Christ and what he's done for us and not to look at ourselves and what we've done. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's read Philippians 3, 1 through 14. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. We are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. A circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, 
a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. And yet I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul gives us here an example of his life, and I think it's an example for us to follow. And he says, before I came to Christ, here's what I was banking on to know that I was good enough. Because ultimately, before Christ, apart from Christ, we bank on ourselves. We count on ourselves. We rely on ourselves. Paul starts this passage by saying, rejoice in the Lord. And then he immediately goes to address false teachers. It's a false teaching that Paul has dealt with throughout most of his career as a missionary. It's the teaching that says, in order to truly know that you are valuable, in order to truly know you're a Christian, in order to truly measure up, you need to get circumcised and you need to obey the Jewish law. And Paul looks at this and says that those things aren't necessarily bad things in of themselves, but Paul sees through and says, what they're setting up is they're setting up another measure for you to bank on yourself, count on yourself, rely on yourself to prove that you're good enough. And if we do that, then we ultimately disregard grace. We're not counting on Christ anymore. We're counting on ourselves. And then I love what Paul does. He says, I've already played that game. I've already played that game of counting on myself and I played it really well and I still lost. Or another way to put it, I think, would Paul say, I played that game and I won, but it was pointless. None of it mattered. He shows, he's like, here's how I was banking on myself. The first four things he gives has to do with his pedigree, his status, that he was circumcised, that he was from the tribe of Israel, that he was, uh, or from Israel, from the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, right? Who I am by birth. And then the second, or the, the next group, the three that come after is, this is how I performed, that, that I was a Pharisee, I had the strictest interpretation of the law, that, that I was so zealous for Judaism that I persecuted anyone who threatened it, and that as to the law, I was blameless. In other words, people that looked at Paul would have said, he's kept it perfectly based on what we're seeing in the externals. His pedigree, his performance. Now, while times have changed, and I don't hear, I have not heard anyone going around recently bragging about or boasting in how good they are because they got circumcised or they're a Pharisee. In reality, these are still two of the areas I think that we bank on ourselves to know that we are good enough. That we may look to our pedigree or our performance. That maybe we look to something uh, that we are. So maybe I would think, well, because I am an American, or because I am conservative, or because I am a churchgoer, or because I was born with natural athletic talent, or because of my beautiful physique, 
I'm not talking about myself there. Uh, But because of all these reasons, maybe I am good enough. That's what I'll look to. Or, I think maybe more common for us, it's because of my performance, because of what I do, because I work hard, because I am a good mom and love my kids well, because I get good grades, because I've made it to retirement, because I handle my finances well, whatever, there's so many things we could put in there, but so many things we say, because of this, I'm banking on, I'm counting that I am good enough. I am good enough. If you want to see, I think, where you're tempted to bank on yourself, look to where is it that you get the most praise or where is it that you feel best when you get praised? And where is it that you think, I'm, be- I, I, I'm above everyone else in this area. I'm better than everyone else in this area. I've achieved more in this area. This, like this battle for what are we going to bank on, we see it displayed every single day on social media. And don't, don't hear me, I'm not saying social media is wrong and I'm, I'm not bashing it, but, but where else like, can we look at something and get immediate feedback on how well we're performing, especially for those who are younger? That, that what I can put out there, I can immediately see how, how well do I measure up? Am I good enough? Do I have more people following me than others? Do I get more thumbs up based on what I'm posting? Do, do I get more feedback? And immediately I can know, well, am I good enough or not? We see it played out in another way. I think too, there's many ways, but another way is we think that if I could just become a better version of myself, then I'll be good enough. Like, well, I failed as a mom yesterday, but if I could be a better mom, then I'll know I'm good enough. Well, I I failed recently at my job, but if I could do better, then I'll know I'm good enough. And we play this game where we think, if I could just become a better version of myself down the road, then I'll know I'm good enough, I'm righteous, I measure up, I have value. And the whole thing is, this game never, ever, ever ends if we're banking on ourselves. We never get to the place where we can just step back and be like, okay, I've made it. I'm good enough. I think I I read a book a couple years ago called Ghost Runner. And the book was about a runner in uh, England in the early 1900s who had been pushed out of the running community uh, because he took money at one point for competing. And so they said, you can't run anymore in races. We're going to disqualify you. So he had this sense of, like, I've got to prove myself. And so what he would do is he would sneak into races right at the start, and then he'd run as best as he can and try to win the race and prove, see, I'm better than all of you. And it's fascinating. His life just became about running, and he set all these records, these endurance records, and did all these incredible things. And what the book conveyed was after he did something amazing, for like a day or two, he'd be able to step back and be like, yeah, I've made it. I'm good enough. And then he'd wake up the next morning and be like, but there's someone else out there who's better. I've got to do something else now. I've got to keep performing. It's this endless treadmill that we're on. And Paul says, even if we do really well, even if we win this game, we still lose because it's still not anything. It still doesn't matter before God. 
Like, I think that's what Paul's like. I had the perfect pedigree. I had the perfect performance. And none of it mattered before God. It may have looked good in front of other people, but none of it mattered before God. It would, it would be kind of like if I played the game of Monopoly and I dominated the game of Monopoly and, and I bankrupted everyone else and I got all the money and I got all the properties and I did so well and I won the game and then as soon as I was over, I walked into my local PNC put it on the counter and said, all right, I want to cash this in. They would look at me and they'd laugh because they'd be like, what are you talking about? You, this doesn't count. This doesn't matter. This is toy money, toy play money. And Paul's like, that's what it was like for me to think that banking on my own performance mattered before God. I was playing with toy money. None of it mattered. We can't get the verdict of we're good enough we have value, we're worthy by banking on ourselves. And I think it's important for us not only to see that that's impossible, but also to see where this fight to prove ourselves often leads to. That if we succeed and we think we're doing better than other people, it makes us prideful. That if we fear my performance isn't going to be good enough, it makes us anxious. Or that if we fail and we see, man, I, I've, I've fallen so far short of everyone else, it leads to despair. And I think of that and then I think, why would we be surprised that with the rise of social media, we've also seen a rise of narcissism, anxiety, and depression? Like, why be surprised about that? We're giving people, ourselves, younger people, a game to say, here, perform well, and you'll know that you're good enough. And the results of that, if we're going to teach that your life is an endless performance due to well, is going to be pride, anxiety, or despair. We, we've got to continually remind ourselves and the next generation, hey, your value, your worth, your identity is not in what you can do. It is in what Christ has done, which is where Paul is going to turn next. He, he shifts in verse 7 to show where he banks now. He says, I was banking on myself, I was counting on myself, but now I'm banking on Christ. He says, all that relentless chasing after, all that relentless of trying to prove myself, trying to get the verdict that I was good enough, everything I was doing, all of that running, I find it only in Christ. Right? It's summed up in verse 9. Paul says, I want to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Paul's saying, what I was looking for, that verdict of you are good enough, you measure up, you are valuable, is only found in Christ. Only found in Christ. And just Stop and think with me for a second how freeing this is if we really believe this. How good this is if we really believe this. That it means I no longer have to run around day after day trying to prove myself, trying to become a better version of myself, trying to point to things and say, look, because of this, I'm good enough, but I can simply look to Christ today because of what he's done, because of who he is, because of his performance, I can have full confidence that I am good enough. I think that when we fully believe this, a weight and a burden gets lifted off of us of we don't have to keep running this race 
to prove ourselves, this never-ending race. Instead, we can just step back and look at Christ and say, what he's done is good enough. And because of that, I have value, worth, and I measure up. I don't have to prove myself anymore. Paul says, the more precious that Christ's performance becomes for us, the more uh, lousy, the more pointless, the more worthless we will see what we were trying to gain by our own efforts. It says, like, I consider everything I was trying to do to get gain and to prove myself as loss because now I see the surpassing worth of Christ. It was all pointless because now I see that what I was looking for was only in Christ. I, I picture this kind of this way. Uh, I, for three months, lived out in Denver, Colorado. And while I was out there, uh, every weekend, I would go out snowboarding on some of the best slopes uh, in America. Like fresh powder, uh, long runs, great go- uh, skiing through the woods, snowboarding through the woods, beautiful scenery. It was amazing. But you know what it did for me? It absolutely killed East Coast skiing, especially Pennsylvania. Because who cares about going to the Poconos when you've been to the Rockies? It doesn't matter anymore, and I have no desire really to go out in the Poconos because I know that there's something far better out there. The same thing happened for me uh, with coffee, right? And this may sound snobbish. I don't mean it that way. Please don't take it that way. But I, I spent a couple, I spent two months then in Panama drinking really good coffee. And it ruined Maxwell House for me. No offense if you like Maxwell House. But it ruined it. It's like, uh, this is no, this, I don't even know if this is coffee, what I've been drinking. Because I've tasted what is really, truly good. I think that's what Paul is saying here, that if we've found how precious Christ's performance is for us, then it ruins all that running of trying to prove ourselves. It makes it seem as pointless as it really is. And the more we treasure Christ and what he's done, the more we will realize all of my efforts to prove myself are wasted and pointless and worthless and, as Paul says, garbage. That maybe the things aren't bad. It's not bad to desire to uh, improve or whatever it might be. But if I'm looking to those things to gain the verdict that I'm good enough, that's garbage. I can't do it. I can only find that in Christ. The more we recognize how good we have it in Christ, the more we will realize all our efforts to measure up and prove ourselves are pointless. The problem is, I think, that's still a battle that's waging within our hearts every single day. It's not simply like a before and after. Well, before I fully relied on myself, now I fully rely on Christ. No, it's a battle. I think every single day we wake up. Who or what am I going to bank on today for that verdict that I'm good enough? Will I look to how well I'm doing on the soccer team at school? Or will I look to Christ? Will I look to how well I'm performing in school and the grades I'm getting? Or will I look to Christ? Will I look to how patient, kind, and loving I was with my kids? Or will I look to Christ even when I failed miserably as a parent today? Will I look to how much my grandchildren love me to find my value? Or will I look to Christ? 
Will I look to how well that last presentation or job that I did went, or will I look to Christ? Will I look to how well my lesson came across, or will I look to Christ? Side note, just so you know, this is a battle that I think pastors constantly face too. I tell the students sometimes, I have this dream in my mind, this dream that one day I'm going to give them the perfect lesson. The lesson that like in the beginning they're laughing, they think it's so funny, then at, towards the middle they're crying, just like cutting to them, and, and then at the end they walk out the doors and they're like, my life has been forever changed. Like, it's never going to happen, and it's stupid that I would dream for that to happen, because what it shows is I am relying on how well I might teach the students for my value and to be good enough, rather than on Christ. And it's a battle everyone faces every single day. Life can either be one long performance, or life can be one joyful dependence on Christ's performance. Is what Paul is telling us in this passage. What we, were, what we are banking on will affect our happiness. What we are banking on will affect our joy. This is why if we look back in verse 1, he started this passage out with a command. It says, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. Stop and think with me how good it is that one of the commands we have in the Bible is to be joyful, be happy, delight. It's like telling a little kid, you have to eat this donut. No little kid's going to be like, oh, that's such a burden. That's miserable. I don't want to do that. I'm going to be like, all right, awesome. Our, our Bible commands, rejoice in Christ, be happy in Christ, delight in Christ. How good is that? How good is that command for us? And Paul, first of all, points to that, and then he diverges down this road of talking about, well, where are we banking on for our approval? And it's because he's making this connection whether we rely on ourselves or we rely on Christ will have a direct effect on our joy in this life. Because if we bank on ourselves, if we rely on ourselves, if we trust in our own ability, we'll only be happy, satisfied, content when we're doing good enough, when we feel like we're measuring up. But if we rely on Christ fully, we can be joyful when we succeed, and we can be joyful when we fail miserably because Christ is enough and his performance is enough. In Christ, we can find true and lasting joy, and so then how foolish is it for us to look back to our performances to try to make ourselves happy, feel good enough, feel worthy. I, I, think, I, I love how Paul talks about it as I look at that stuff as trash as garbage. I, I think of if I, I've got an eight-month-old son, and if I put before him in our living room uh, on one side a pile of trinkets and on another side a 10-carat diamond, most likely, I'd be willing to bet, he's going to go straight for the trinkets. And if he does go for the diamond, he's just going to try to swallow it. Because he's a child. And, and someone, he's, he's, he doesn't know any better. He's foolish. Paul's saying, before Christ, we didn't know any better. The only thing we knew was, let me trust in my performance, what I can do, my efforts to prove myself. 
He said, now that we know Christ and we see we can rely on his performance, it's utterly foolish for us to look back and think, I've got to prove myself. I've got to perform. I've got to do well enough. I think of, again, with with this idea of trash, uh, to just try to drive this home. There was one point in my life, well, maybe more than one, but one that I can remember, where I went dumpster diving. Any of you ever been dumpster diving? All right, a couple. I went dumpster diving for food, so I don't know if you went for food or not. Uh, And it was not because I needed food, okay? It's not because, like, uh, my parents weren't feeding me. Uh, I I didn't need anything. But I was with uh, another guy. We were, like, 20 years old. We were stupid. uh, And we were talking about, well, what if we would move out and we would just, like, dumpster dive for food in the back of Wise? Uh, And then we could cut our food bill and we'd be able to live. Again, we were 20 years old. We were dumb. Uh, But we went to Wise. And I kind of played lookout while my friend jumped into the dumpster, uh, rooted through it, found uh, something that was recently expired, still a little bit cold. I think it was some hash browns along with something else. Like, awesome, let's go back and cook this up. And so we go back to his house and we cook it up and we eat it. And then we kind of wait to be like, okay, we're going to get sick or not? Are we going to survive here? Uh, And it was okay. It was fine. Uh, But I look at that picture. I think how foolish would have it been if when we went out the door to go to the dumpster, we walked right past a home-cooked meal from his mom. Like, this is what I think, ham loaf, potatoes, like peach pie, and and we smelled it and we saw it, and we walked right past it and we went to the dumpster to get our food. How stupid would that be? How foolish would that be? And yet that's the picture I think Paul's painting of when we know our Christ has performed for us, And instead, we keep turning back to, well, I've got to be good enough. I've got to be a better version of myself. I've got to measure up. It's like this idea of jumping in a dumpster when there's a feast right in front of us all along. Paul says, don't buy the lie. Don't turn back. Don't fall for a false joy. Paul says, his joy is found now in Christ, knowing him, experiencing his power, suffering with him, and becoming like him one day. I think if we could just look at Paul's life for a second and get the picture in our mind of his before and after. Before, he was probably well-respected. He had power and influence. People liked Paul. They looked up to Paul. He probably had a pretty comfortable life. Like, he was successful in the eyes of his culture. After, where does Paul at when he writes this letter? He's sitting on a jail floor or a jail cell floor in Rome. Many of his friends have abandoned him. He's got enemies all over the place, and he's not sure if he's going to live or die. And he's got scars all over his body from beatings, shipwrecks, and far more. And he says, I wouldn't trade a thing because I've found true and lasting joy in Christ. And so if suffering means I get to rely more fully on Christ, then let me suffer. I look at that and I'm like, I want to be there. I'm not sure I'm there, but I want to be there. I think for, like in the eyes of Paul's culture, they look at him and they're like, Paul, you are a loser because you've given up all this other stuff to, to like suffer and put yourself through all this difficulty for Christ. You're a loser. And Paul would be like, no, no, no. I've won because I've found what I've always been looking for in Christ. I found what I've always been chasing after in Christ. 
I, I think of, let's just think of for ourselves. Think about my kid. Think about your kids, your grandkids. How many of us would say, I would rather have them committed, fully following Christ, loving him, delighting in him, and possibly sitting in a jail cell in a foreign country than I would have them be successful, accomplished, but nominal Christians? Or I think for myself, am I more worried about being comfortable, being liked, having an easy life, being successful, or am I willing to give those things up because I found in Christ the true treasure that I want and that I desire, and I found in him the verdict I've been longing for, that I'm good enough, and I don't have to run this race of performance anymore. Paul's entire life is aimed now at knowing and becoming more like Christ. This is what he's getting at in verses 12 through 14. So it's not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies ahead or forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul tells us he's fully banking on and relying on Christ. And because that's the case, his life's goal, his life's ambition is now to chase and run after Christ, to know him more and to become like him, even if that involves suffering and difficulty. No matter what, he's going after Christ. And that's the, the final point this morning, that what we are banking on will affect our life's goal. I think we've got to sit and wrestle here just for a second with Paul. Because I think sometimes we have this idea of, well, if I truly believed that my value, my worth, and me being good enough in God's eyes rested on Christ alone, then, then I might just sit back and kind of prop up my feet and be like, okay, I'm good to go. I don't have to do anything anymore. I, I, it doesn't matter what I do anymore because it's all about Christ. But Paul has the exact opposite thought. The thought is, because I've found what I'm looking for in Christ and because he's so sweet and valuable and important and good, I'm going to run the race after him. That my only goal is going to be to know him and to become more like him. Don't, don't get me wrong here. Paul's not saying, well, if I run really well after Christ, then I'll know I'm good enough. That's not what he's saying. That'd be falling back into the old mindset. He's not saying, if I run really well after Christ, then I'll get to heaven. That's not what he's saying. That'd be relying on himself. But what he's saying is because Christ is so sweet and valuable, and I found what I'm looking for in him because he's such a treasure, I'm going to run every single day to know him and be more like him. That's my only goal in life now. See, it's this idea of Paul used to be running this race of I've got to prove myself, I've got to perform. And now he says, because I've been set free from that, my life, all that matters is that I would know Christ and become more like him, come what may. And, and I love this image Paul used of running a race because I picture that in my mind and I think, no one who is running the mile, once who's running a race that's a mile long around a track, would simply run really hard, lead the first lap, and then bow out and think, all right, I'm done. I'm done. Paul's saying in the same way, we should not think, well, I've 
done enough for Christ. I've, served, I've done my duty. I, I've done what's needed. I can just get to this place where I can coast which I think is a temptation for us as Christians, that we want to get to this place where we can just kind of coast in this life and say, we've made it, we've done enough. Let's just wait until Christ returns. And Paul's saying, no, if we truly value Christ and his righteousness, then it would change our goal in life. And no matter what, we would run for him, make our goal knowing him, becoming more like him every single day. I think of uh, a quote from, or I don't think it's a quote, but something that people talked about with Adoniram Judson. He was the, the first missionary uh, f- that was sent out from America. And he had this idea, I forget, forget if it was a quote or not, but had this idea of if you go as a missionary to another country, you are dedicated for life. And, and what he meant by that in his mind was there's no turning back. There's no saying, all right, I'm going to return home now. And whether we agree with that or not, uh, that was his idea. But I think whether we agree to that or not for the missionary life, we would absolutely say that's true of the Christian life. That when I leave behind my own performance and I look to Christ, I'm dedicated for life. I'm not looking to get to some place where I can coast. I'm saying every single day my goal is to know Christ, to become more like him, to rest fully in what he's done for me. Uh, the, the article that I quoted at the beginning goes on and has a good quote that I think is uh, good to kind of finish up with. The author says, what this generation needs, talking about Gen Z, is a fresh demonstration of what it looks like to cast everything aside for Christ. What does it look like to sell everything to follow Jesus? What does it look like to pick up our cross daily in a hyper-connected world? We must communicate and model to them clearly and consistently that our personal success is not our final objective in life. Our financial success, college success, career success, relationship success, and all other successes that we aspire to achieve are not the ultimate successes. I think that's absolutely true. That what the next generation is looking for, as well as what the whole world is looking for, is people who would model. I'm not relying on myself anymore because I've found someone else I can rely on, but I'm giving my entire life now to know them and to become more like Christ. I want to close with just uh, three thoughts. Uh, And if, if you have the notes, they're on your notes at the bottom. Uh, but it'd be kind of an application from this. And it's three blanks that you could maybe think about filling in. The first blank says, in blank, or or think of in this area, in this uh, sphere, I'm still trying to prove myself rather than relying on Christ's performance for me. I'd love to have us just think about that. Where am I banking on myself still rather than relying on Christ? Where am I thinking it's based on what I do rather than what Christ does that makes me good enough? The second one there would be, I'm lacking joy because I feel like I'm failing in blank. Where is it that you feel like because I'm not measuring up, I'm lacking joy and happiness because I'm not relying ultimately on Christ? And then the final one is, I've got distracted by my pursuit of Christ, knowing him and becoming more like him because of blank. I think it's just a way to think through Where is it 
that we still struggle with these things? Where is it that we're still relying on ourselves rather than fully relying on Christ and chasing after him? Let me close in prayer. Father, I praise you that it is not because of any of our performances in here this morning that you look at us and you say, righteous, or that you look at us and you say, good enough. You look at us and you say, you are valuable. God, no matter how well we think we did this week or no matter how poorly we think we did this week, that's not what finally matters. What matters is Christ lived, died, and was raised for us. And so I pray that we find freedom in that and joy in that. And God, I pray that as a result of that, we'd see how precious and sweet and good it is to give our lives to know more of Christ, to follow after him, and to become more like him. May that be our goal tomorrow, today, and every day. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.